Awesome. Well, why don't we begin by reading in Scripture? Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 2? And we're going to be reading verses 42 to 47 this morning and then finding out what this means for us today. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. But this is what it says. Verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, you can write down this title for the message today. It's called A Living Church. A Living Church. Why don't we pray and jump into it? Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are with us. We thank you that this isn't just like a a gathering of a club, but this is a gathering of your people. And we ask that you would just be amongst us today. We thank you that your presence is guiding us and is leading us. And we pray that this morning, that everything we do would serve to glorify your mighty name. So we just pray that we would direct our eyes heavenward this morning, that we would look to you, and that you would do what only you can do in our midst today. We praise you, Lord. In your mighty name, we pray. And everybody said? Amen. 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 Um, For those of you who don't know, I'm from Canada. And... uh, I also met another Canadian this morning, which is awesome in church. So watch out is all I'm saying, okay? Uh, pretty soon, wh- this is my master plan all along, one at a time, just bringing Canada to Sweden. Um, but as a Canadian who grew up in the southern part of the province of Ontario, I have been to Niagara Falls many times in my life. Many, do you know Niagara Falls? Have you heard of Niagara Falls? You probably, most people have heard of Niagara Falls. I've been there, to be honest, more times than I would care to have been there in my life. Because every time somebody would come visit us in Canada, we would go to Niagara Falls and take it. You got to let's go see Niagara Falls. You got to check it out. This is where we went. And so we would go to Niagara Falls. Um, but it is understandable that it's a popular tourist destination. It's a pretty I- impressive place. You go and you stand near the falls and it's like you can feel the power of the water that's moving and is going over the cliff. It's absolutely incredible. It's so loud. You get near and it's like it's loud. I was reading this week that in in 1751, a Finnish explorer, of all people, a uh, Finnish explorer, uh, together with his like exploration party, which there were already people in Canada, so the Finns were a little late to the game, okay? Um, but they all agreed that they could hear the falls from 45 kilometers away, which I'm telling you is a lie. You definitely can't do that, but it's loud, okay? It's pretty amazing. Uh, but 2,382 metric tons of water cascade over the falls every single second. And I'm always fascinated that whenever you go there, everybody's first reaction is to try and get as close as possible as you can to the waterfall. It's unbelievable. And you get there and, you know, you park your car and you you walk and there's just like a tiny railing separating you from this water that's going over. Like it feels like you can 
can reach out and just touch the water as it's going over. And everybody's crowding around, trying to get as close to it as possible. There's even a tour you can sign up for, and you can go and you can walk behind the waterfall in another effort to just try and get as close as you can. So now you're seeing it from the other side, you're behind it, and you can feel like it's just like going over your head. It's unbelievable. Um, there's also like a boat ride you can take where you can like get as close as possible. Victoria and I, we've done this. I've got a photo of us actually on this boat. You can do it. Look how psyched we are to be getting close to the falls. It's like, you know, we got a lot closer than that. You're getting as close as you can, and everybody just wants to get closer, closer, closer to the waterfall as possible. And when you get close, you feel the power and the majesty of it all. And I think that coming to church should be a similar experience for us that we draw nearer and nearer to the roar of God's presence amongst his gathered people, and that we would have a desire to get just a little closer. Can I get a little closer? How can I get a little closer? I want to get there. I want to be there. I want to be amongst it. I want to feel it. I want to be there. Niagara Falls can be described as active and majestic and wonderful and powerful and inspiring and alive. But I wonder if church can usually be described in this way. These adjectives, I think they must describe local churches today. Not only our church, but all churches that are earthly outposts of God's heavenly kingdom. As far as I'm concerned, there should be no dead or dying churches. We serve a living Savior. Let us be a living church. Last week, I began this series on Rediscover Church by speaking on what the church is. And just to recap, if you weren't here, I spoke from 1 Timothy 3, where Paul is writing to Timothy that the church is the household of God. It's the church of the living God, and it's the pillar and foundation of truth in the world. What is church? The church is not a building. It's a body of believers. It's not a business. It's the bride of Christ. It's not a corporation. It's a congregation of Christians. It's not a financial institution. It's a family. The church is not a place, it's a people. But as a people, we gather regularly in a place and we worship God. Why is the church important? Because God has left it here on earth to continue the work that Jesus began in the world. So I spoke about that last week. But this week, we're going to move on a little bit to some of the things that the church does. If we want to be a living church, which we do, we don't want to be a dying church. We don't want to be a dead church. We want to be a living church because we serve a living God, and the living God is in our midst, animating, empowering what we do. If we want to be a living church that represents the living God to a dying world, what must we be about? What are our priorities? What are the things that we aim for? What are the things that we do as a church? And this is a big question. The writer Ray Ortland, he has written that the problem most churches face is not that they do not do anything. They do plenty. The problem is that they are not doing the right things. Heard a story of a pilot that announced to his passengers over the intercom system on the plane. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is that we have a tailwind and we're making excellent time. The bad news is that our navigation system is broken and we have no idea where we're going. (laughs) And unfortunately, I think that that describes far too many churches in our world today. 
There's a man named Billy Sunday, which is the greatest name for an evangelist of all time. Um, He was a former professional baseball player in the early 1900s, and then he turned evangelist, which, by the way, also I look at that and I think, why did I not take that trajectory in life? Pretty much the coolest thing. Um, Did you say I did? Playing baseball in high school does not count. (laughs) But I'm so thankful that my wife thinks of me in such high regard. That's wonderful. Um, But he said this. He said, there wouldn't be so many non-churchgoers if there were not so many non-going churches. I think that's so true. Here at Life Center, we don't want to be a church that's just spinning our wheels. We don't want to be a church that's stuck in a ditch. We don't want to be a church that has parked ourselves in the garage of comfortable Christianity. We want to be a church that's alive, that takes the good news of Jesus to the world. I heard a message recently that discussed some of the priorities that many churches are fueled by. Not all bad things, necessarily, but certainly not the main things or priorities or purposes of a church. Here are some, they all start with the letter P. Here are some of the things that can often fuel or drive a church forward. The first thing is the past. Tradition. It's the way we've always done it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of mentality. It's uh, we saw God move in the 60s and 70s in a powerful way. And if we want to see him move now, then we better just do that again. If it worked back then, let's do it again. We're just going to be caught in what was. We're never going to update. We're never going to change. Now, listen, as a church, our mission remains the same. Our mission does not change. But our methods do change in order to reach a world. And I think that that's an important thing. But it's easy to get caught in the past as a church. Other churches might be fueled just by personality. Uh, This is where it's like an entire church is just built around a pastor. And if the pastor leaves, the church just falls apart. That's not how churches should be built. We don't build around the personality of a pastor. We build around the name of Jesus. A church shouldn't be built just around the personality of a certain group of people in a church that, that dominate. Uh, not at all. That's, this is not, you ever heard it like, oh, that's so-and-so's church? It's like, no, it's not. That's Jesus' church. <laughs> Life Center, this is not my church. This is the, the church of Christ. And it's important that we recognize that. Another thing is pockets. Sometimes churches are driven by pockets, money, finances, payment. Listen, uh, it takes money to make church happen, of course. But this is not our main focus or our main purpose as a church. We're not a a church to primarily be focused on money. Another one is politics, social agendas, etc. Churches can be really driven by this. Other churches are driven by pews. If you don't know what that word is, shirkbenkor. Uh, Bank. Um, you know, it's the idea of whatever we can do to fill seats, whatever we, whatever we can do, that's the most important thing. And listen, I do think it's important that people are coming to the church. Again, that's the sign, uh, I, I would say, of a church that is growing and that is living. And after all, we are uh, dedicated to discipling people. And the reality is you can't disciple an empty chair as hard as you might try. So it is important that people are in our churches. But is that the main thing? Last one is programs. This is a church that's just built around events. We just go from event to event. We treat Sunday like it's an event. You come, you see people at church on a Sunday, and you come to like a church event, and then you leave, but you don't see anybody ever again. You don't even care about the people or anything like that at all. A lot of churches are driven that way. No wonder, looking at some of these things, there's confusion uh, amongst Christians and unbelievers as well about the purposes and the activities 
of a church. No wonder. According to one survey, when asked what's the purpose of the church, 89% of churchgoers said the church's purpose is to take care of my family and my needs. 89%. That's a, that's a, a staggering number. Notice that language, my family, my needs, as if the church was an institution that just exists, exists to serve my needs. Me, me, me. It's the favorite word of our age, even if we don't like to admit it. I don't think that this will do if we want to see our church be a living church and a healthy church and a thriving church. As I said a moment ago, we, we long to be a living church that points people to a living God. And if our focus isn't meant to be on, on these things, then, then where is it meant to be? What are some of the markers of a church that is alive? What are some of the hallmarks, some of the things that a church does that is living? And I'm speaking today while making a few assumptions, okay? And I understand that you shouldn't do that. Uh, you know what they say about that. <laughs> but let me outline some of those assumptions to you because I think that it will be helpful for us as we go forward. The first thing is I'm assuming that as a church that we are committed to the church, that we're not only a Christian people, but we are a church people. We're not only committed to Christ, but because we're committed to Christ, we are committed to his church. If we deeply love Christ, then we can't ignore his body, of which he is the head. If we love Christ, how can we not love what he loves? Ephesians 5.25 tells us that it was the church in particular that Christ loves and gave himself up for. The church is not an afterthought for Jesus. It's not something that was added to Christian tradition by a group of pastors at some point. The church is not an accident. The church is God's new humanity. It is his household, his family. It's for his glory, his purpose, and ultimately he builds his church. Paul writes in Titus 2.14 that it says Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, but also to purify for himself a people, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That people is the church. We are committed to church because God is committed to church. And commitment is a beautiful testimony to that which we love. If you want to see what somebody prioritizes and cares about and loves, look at the things that they are committed to. It serves as an incredible witness to the world around us when we are committed to the church. I think that it shows the beauty of Jesus to a world that is so not wanting to commit to anything today. In the sixth century, there's a man named St. Benedict, and he founded a monastery and a, a monastic movement called the Benedictine Movement. It really it began in the West, and it was uh, an incredible, incredibly powerful thing at that time. And one of the rules of becoming a monk at that time was commitment to your monastery for life, okay? When I think about that, it's like commitment for life? Like, th this is, I mean, outside of marriage, there are very few things that I'm committed to for life, okay? Like, I sign up for Netflix and then cancel it the next month kind of thing, okay? Uh, you know, if, it, if it, anything more than a month at a time, count me out, all right? <laughs> I, I can't, I, you know, I can't be a part of that. I, sometimes I have a problem, like, booking in a meeting three weeks from now. It's like, I don't know, I don't know who I'm going to be three weeks from now or how I'm going to be feeling. Like, that's a big commitment to make. Our world doesn't like commitment, but at this time, 
in this time with these monks, they committed for life. And it was actually recorded that their commitment led to them being so relevant in a time of chaos in the world. And this is really interesting to me because I'm not saying that we need to or that we should become monks, okay? I want you to know that right now. I'm also not saying that you need to commit to life Center church for life, right? Sign on the dotted line kind of thing. Not, that's not what I'm saying. But I do think that today, in a time where it feels like our world so often spins in chaos, the commitment to a local church makes the church so relevant to the world around us because it begs the question, why are you doing that? Causes the world to ask why. Why would you be committed to that? Why do you care about that? Why is that important to you? Some of you may be here today and you're skeptical towards church as an institution. Maybe you're critical towards it. Maybe you're cynical towards it. I understand that. As I've been saying throughout this series, I want to remain sensitive to the fact that the church as an institution has often done things that has given people legitimate reasons not to trust it. I'm not standing up here ignoring that fact or blind to that fact. I recognize that. Sometimes I look at the state of the church around the world, and as a pastor, I'm dismayed by it. But my first response is not to jump ship when the going gets tough. But perhaps you're here today and you have a conflicted relationship to church. I want to be empathetic and understanding of that. I really do. Uh, This is part of the unfortunate reality of the church being a people, made up of people, imperfect people, broken people, people that will offend you and might hurt you. But fortunately, even though we get it wrong, I'm thankful that Jesus doesn't. The church is not perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Thankfully, Christ doesn't love the church because it's beautiful, but rather he loves the church to make it beautiful. And I'm thankful for that. The other assumption I'm making this morning is that we are committed to the mission of the church. We believe that the church is called out of the world to belong to God, but is also sent back into the world to be a witness to who Jesus is and to serve the world. We believe that the mission of the church is modeled on the mission of Christ. As Jesus says in John 20, verse 21, he says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. We are sent into the world to enter other people's lives and worlds, to enter into other people's realities, to empathize, to understand their misunderstandings, to feel their pain, to walk alongside, but also to challenge, to bear witness, to evangelize, to love, and to do all of these things without compromising our Christian beliefs or values in any way. And the third assumption I'm making is that we are committed to the renewal of the church. In many places in the Western world, the church is not growing. It's as if its development is stunted. Where the church was once treated with respect, it is now oftentimes met with distrust. Think about when you tell colleagues or friends or family that you go to church or you're a Christian. They might just think that's a little bit strange, a little bit weird. Where church was once an example of goodness, the world is not so sure anymore. And again, it can be because churches have at times given people good reason not to trust them. But I think in other ways, the the reason that the world sometimes wants to keep the church at arm's length is because the church is a threat to worldly values. 
But we long to see God's church continually renewed and reformed by the word of God and by the spirit of God. All right, so that said, and some of those assumptions made, we can now approach the question, what are the marks of a living church? And to answer these questions, we turn to scripture. So let us turn back to the scripture that we read at the beginning of this sermon. And let's see if we can take some cues from that early spirit-filled church in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. What were they about? Now, was this church perfect? No. It can be easy sometimes to look at the early church through rose-tinted glasses and think if we could only be like that, it would be perfect, as if they had nothing wrong. Read the New Testament. They had a lot of stuff going on in the early church, okay? There was hypocrisy. There was heresy. There was uh, fighting, disagreements. If you want to read a church that's messed up, read 1 Corinthians, okay? This place was pretty insane. There was like, this group was like, you can't take communion with us because we're rich people and you're poor people, and so we're not going to talk to you. There was another group over there that were just like yelling at each other in tongues. There was another group over here that was yelling in prophecy and all this, and the Apostle Paul has to go in and try and sort this all out. It was chaos, okay? So let's not pretend that there wasn't problems in the early church. But one thing that was certain is they were filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God fell on the day of Pentecost, and they were filled. And so is there anything we can look at that this early church was engaged in that caused the name of Jesus to be known and that allowed them to be a witness to who Christ was? The passage we're reading today comes from the book of Acts. And if you're unfamiliar with the New Testament, the book of Acts is like a foundation story for the church. It's like an origin story, right? We've all like seen the origin story. Everybody loves a good origin story. There's nothing like it. Uh, you know, uh, any Marvel movie, whatever, a good origin story is awesome. That's kind of what the book of Acts is in the Bible. It paints a picture of how the early church went about continuing the work of Jesus in the world. So what did this look like? What was the church doing that gave witness to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in their midst? The answer comes from some essentials that Luke outlines in Acts chapter 2. Luke, who wrote Acts, takes note of, I think, four marks of a living church. In 2 verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I've preached on this before, but I think it's so important to revisit this time and time again for us as a church today. Four things I want to pull out of this that we're going to spend the rest of this series looking on. Here are four statements. You can put those up on the screen. Four statements, four things that a living church must be about in order to continue the work of Jesus in this world. A living church is a learning church. A living church is a participating church. A living church is a worshiping church. And a living church is a reaching church. And within these statements... I think that we see the purpose of the church in the world today. And actually, one of them is more important than all the others. I wonder if you can guess which one. And we're going to look at that in coming weeks. Today, we're going to focus in on the first two in these minutes that we have. And then over the next two weeks, as we finish out this series, we're going to look at the last two. And I really hope that this helps you rediscover church in your life and find out where it is that you fit within a local church setting. So number one. A living church is a learning church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Learning. 
This seems strange, doesn't it? Seems strange to think of one of the purposes of the church as being learning. It's not the first thing that might come to mind. It's been said that on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up, if you don't know, he preaches a sermon to all of these Jews who were gathered in Jerusalem and he preaches this message about who Jesus is and shows how the Old Testament points towards Christ as the Messiah. And he gives the very first salvation message in history. And on that day, 3,000 people were added to their number. I mean, talk about explosive growth in the church at that time. It was said that a school was opened in Jerusalem on that day. The teachers were the apostles who Jesus had appointed and trained. And then 3,000 people joined the class. It's easy for us to stand back and imagine now in 2023 that nobody wants to learn about Jesus. Sometimes we think that. Nobody wants to learn about Jesus, especially younger people. We think, gosh, nobody wants to learn about Jesus. No young person wants to learn about Jesus. Which, by the way, I feel insane saying young people because in my mind, I am young people, okay? I want you to know that right now. Uh, (laughs) I get bummed out hearing about Gen Z all the time uh, because I'm not Gen Z. I'm a millennial, and I've realized millennials are now in their 40s, okay? And they have mortgages and kids and talk about pensions. And, like, Victoria and I were talking about pensions the other week. I was like, who have we become that we're talking about this, you know? And then I see Gen Z. Oh, Gen Z, they're innovative. They're disruptive. They're creative. They're the driving force in the world today. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess that's me uh, done with now in life. Uh, That's the end of that. I'm kidding, by the way, because everybody older than me is like, you are so young. I get that. I understand. But uh, Victoria and I, here's an aside. Here's a beef I want to just bring up with you. Victoria and I were at uh, Jacob and Amanda's place for dinner on Friday night. It was awesome. But Jacob told me very clearly, I see you there, Jacob. Jacob told me very clearly, I just want to remind you I'm born in the year 2000. And I was like, bro, you want to fight right now? Because I'm going to say about this. Anyways. I forgive you, bro, because that's what a church community does, man. Um, But listen, I think that we underestimate and have underestimated for too long the hunger that young people have for Jesus. A study was released by, uh, they're called Barna. They, They do studies into Christianity and trends in Christianity. It was released just this past February that looked into the willingness and the desire of teenagers to learn more about Jesus. And this is what they found. You can put this on the screen. Um, They they found this. Maybe you can't see that, so I'm going to just break it down. Across all teens who were surveyed, so this is whether they had faith or not, more than half of teenagers reported as being very motivated to learn more about Jesus, whether they were believers or not. Amongst committed Christian teens, that number is 80%. They wanted to learn more about Jesus. They wanted to know more about him. This is so encouraging to me. I love that there is a generation of Christians coming up that desire to know more about Jesus. They want to learn about Jesus. They don't just want to come to church because it's a cool event, although there's nothing wrong with a a compelling and beautiful expression of church. I think that it should be. But I love that there are people that want to learn more about Jesus. The question is, where are people turning to learn more about Jesus. People are being discipled. You better believe that. Where are people being discipled today? 
so often they're being discipled from, you know, some dude on TikTok or Instagram that is saying all kinds of crazy stuff. Sometimes it's really good, but sometimes it's really misguided and misdirecting, misdirected, and people are being discipled by their phones. You know, later in the same study, uh, they release some of the places that people are being discipled and learning about Jesus. And a lot of the usual places are there, social media, but also family, which is awesome, and friends, and also church, which is also good. But more than 80% of teenagers said that their top trusted source for learning about Jesus was themselves. How come? Why would I just trust, why would I trust myself as the arbiter of truth in the universe to tell me what is true about Jesus and what is not true about Jesus? Um, again, perhaps because people don't trust the church, that needs to change. Perhaps because people don't trust other Christians, that needs to change. If not, the next generation will approach discipleship as if it were a solo endeavor. Something to be done alone in isolation while glued to a screen. But that's not the model that we see in Scripture. In Scripture, we see learning about Jesus and discipleship to Jesus as something that happens within the church community as we commit ourselves to Jesus, but also to one another. Learning is something that we need to commit to together as a church. This is one of the things that a living church is about. I'm consistently dismayed at how few Christians seem to actually understand the basics of Christian belief, like who Jesus is, the, the sto basic story of scripture, um, what it means to be a Christian, what it means that Jesus came, the difference between the Old and New Testaments, all of these things. I am often confused at how few Christians are able to actually um, articulate those things. And if that's you here today, I'm not trying to guilt trip you, okay? Honestly, I'm not. Um, I understand that a lot of the Bible is very confusing and faith and doctrine and so on. Uh, I, I get that. The problem is not you. All too often, the problem is me. <laughs> and by me... I mean people that are in pastoral ministry and preach and teach God's word. Sometimes I wonder where we may have gone a degree or two off course and where sermons become more of a lifestyle enhancement kind of thing, maybe more of a leadership talk, you know, three ways to live your best life. And listen, I believe that as we follow Jesus, we truly do live our best life. I, I firmly believe that. But have we, in an attempt to reach the world and try and be relevant and try and reach the next generation, have we diluted and watered down scripture to the point that all the bite is taken off of it when what young people really want is to learn more about Jesus? This is why as a church here at Life Center, we are committed to learning. It's why we do things like discovery which I know many of you are part of. You know how much I love that we're having 40 plus people going into deep, what is essentially systematic theology, deep teaching about who Jesus is and what it means for, you know how much I love that? When people point and say, uh, you know, why are young people coming to a midweek Bible study where you guys are talking about heaven, hell, and everything in between, and all, what's going on? People wanna learn more about Jesus. They want to know, we are, we are committed to learning as a church, as a pastor, it's my commitment to teach the word of God in a way that doesn't skip over the hard things, that doesn't make it easy, but it's what God's word says. 
and in a way that we can apply to our lives today. I think it's so important. In the early centuries of the church, when, when a person became a Christian, they also became something called a catechumen. And this is a Latin word that basically means someone being instructed. And if somebody made a decision to become a Christian, I want to follow Jesus in the first couple centuries of the church, let's say in the year, uh, you know, like the year 330 or something like that. This would be typical. They would commit at that point to three years of rigorous training in doctrine before they were allowed to be baptized. Now, I don't think that that kind of program is necessary. I don't think that there's a biblical precedent for it. I don't think you need three years of training before you get baptized. We don't see that in scripture, for instance. But I do think there's something to be said for this kind of rigorous learning and commitment to faith that the early church had. And I can't help but wonder how that may have contributed to the stability of the early church to endure persecution in the Roman Empire, to be able to grow and remain stable even when the world around them was in complete chaos. And so we are a learning community. Those 3,000 Christians that accepted Jesus as their Savior on the day of Pentecost, they were not just having some mystical, spiritual experience. They were not just having something that was like, that was amazing, and it causes them to just lose their minds and stop thinking or discerning or despise theology or any of those things. The opposite was true. They followed Jesus. They had an incredible and a deep experience with Jesus. And then they devoted themselves to learning more about following Jesus. Not so that they could just know more information about Jesus, but so that they could know more of Jesus relationally, intimately. We don't pursue learning so that we can have a bunch of information and win theological debates with people. We devote ourselves to learning so that we can know Jesus more intimately and more fully. It's like you get a crush on someone. <laughs> I remember when I first got a crush on Victoria, I did everything I could to learn more about her, okay? And so I was like asking people, what can you tell me about this person? I got to know more about this person. Who is she? Does she have a boyfriend? She's from Sweden. Where is Sweden? What is going on here? Can, I, can anybody find a map and point me towards Sweden, please? Because I don't know where this is. And it's like I wanted to just know more about her. Maybe you felt the same, okay? Maybe you've done something similar, and you've just like kind of Instagram stalked somebody or something like that, okay? Uh, if that's you, put a hand up. I want to pray for I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> don't, you don't have to admit that. Um, but it's like we want to, if we love someone, we want to know more about them. We commit to learning more about them. Maybe it's a, a hobby you have, and you've committed endless hours to learning more about this thing. How much more should we spend time committing to learning about who Jesus is so that we can know him more? Now, listen, it's impossible to know God fully, all right? That's a, you're never going to get there. But we can know him accurately, and I think... More than ever in our world today, we need to know God accurately in order to take him into the world effectively and show people who he is. This is so important. So what does this mean for us today? How can we as a church submit ourselves to the teaching and the authority of the apostles? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. How can we do that? What does that mean? There's different ways of thinking about this. And there are people way smarter than me that would agree with me on this. And there are people way smarter than me then would disagree with me on this. But I would hold to what is actually a traditional, historically traditional Christian understanding that there are no apostles in the church today. 
When I say church, I don't just mean ours. I mean the universal global church. There are no apostles in the church today. There are pastors, there's bishops, there's leaders, there's ministers, there's church planters, there's missionaries, and so on. And I would be okay with defining certain of these ministries, especially missionary ministry, as being apostolic in nature, as in one who is sent. But I would say that the role or the office or the title of apostle doesn't refer to anybody outside of a small group of people in the New Testament. If there were, we would have to be willing to have the conversation about adding their writing to the New Testament. This is a big deal. Their words wouldn't just hold authority, it would hold authority with a capital A. And this is a fairly traditional Christian viewpoint on this topic. What I'm not saying is actually that new today. Um, And I'm fine for you to disagree on this as well. This is a minor point in the faith. Um, But that would certainly be my understanding. But if there are no apostles in that way today, how can we be devoted to the apostles' teaching? The reason I'm saying this is because I don't want to get up here and try and pretend like I'm an apostle, which means all my teaching you guys need to be devoted to, okay? That would be like a power-hungry type move by somebody in ministry, to try and get up here and say, my words are on par with scripture, and you need to devote yourself to whatever I say. That if, if I say that, run, okay? Honestly, run from that. I don't think that that's healthy, and that's how things spiral out of control into very unhealthy sects and cults of Christianity. We don't, that's not right. And so that's what I'm trying to just make very clear. But what, how, how can we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? Where is this apostles' teaching found? The answer is pretty simple, actually. The apostles' teaching is found in Scripture, okay? <laughs> it's that simple. It's in the Bible that the teaching of the apostles has been given to us. A living church is a learning church, and we learn from and submit to the teaching of Scripture. So as a pastor, I teach Scripture on a a Sunday, for instance. As a parent, you teach Scripture to your kids. As Christians and believers, we read and we meditate on Scripture daily as we grow in our relationship to Jesus. Um, When I was growing up, if I can be honest, I I found the Bible pretty boring. Anyone else? (laughs) You don't have to put a hand up for that either. Um, Let's be real, okay? Let's not be fake Christians in here. I know that many of us find the Bible boring and difficult to read. And if somebody tells you otherwise, I don't believe you, okay? (laughs) It can be at times. There's large parts of it that are uh, boring to read. I understand. I really do. Um, As a kid, I mean, I I always liked church. It was always good to go. I was raised in a a great Christian family. But for me, Bible reading was like, it was kind of, you know, we would do devotions around the family table. And that was kind of what my Bible reading life looked like at that time. I didn't do so much reading on my own. But I remember when I was like, probably around 13 or 14 years old, I remember being challenged by my pastor in the church that I grew up in. Now, my pastor, to be honest, I found him a little boring, okay? Uh, Which hopefully you don't find me boring uh, today. I don't know. Uh, He wasn't the most engaging pastor. I'm not going to say his name. I doubt he's ever going to listen to this, but I don't want to. Um, Although it's not like he wouldn't know who I'm talking about right now, so I'm sorry uh, if you're hearing this. Uh, If we got a story in the sermon, that was a big deal, okay? If we heard a story, whoa, okay? This was like an outrageous Sunday. It was amazing. So I found him a little boring, not the most engaging, but I do remember 
one thing he said. Maybe I remember this story because there were so few. But I remember one thing he said, and that was that when he was in Bible college, he felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to read through the Bible 10 times in one year. And this blew me away. As a young teenager who rarely read scripture at all, I was thinking, why would anybody want to do that? What could possibly compel somebody to take the time to read through the Bible 10 times in one year? This makes no sense to me. Why would they want to do that? And to be honest, my respect for him grew greatly on that day. And I was challenged myself when it came to my own Bible reading as a young teenager. And for some reason, his example urged me to pick up my Bible and to begin to read it. And I have been committed to reading my Bible ever since. I read it basically every day. Some days I forget. And if I do, I read it the next day. Um, I'm committed to it. I read a Bible reading plan. I go through it daily. It's a daily discipline. Um, I don't say this to try and break, but I want to encourage you to do the same. Pick up your Bible and start reading. This past January, and for the past four Januaries in a row, I've read the entire Bible in that month. This past January, I read the the entire Bible in three weeks. For the rest of this year, I will read through another few times. This year, I'm hoping to get through the Bible four times. I'm not on the level of my childhood pastor yet, but I'll get through it four times, and I'll get through Psalms and Proverbs more than that as well. And I tell you this to say, it has changed my life. Because the gospel is like that. It creates a whole new story for your life. It reveals to you, it shows you your new identity in Christ. You come to understand that you matter to God, that Jesus gave his life for you, that we as a church need you, that this story shows what God is doing in the world and how you are a part of it. And learning reshapes how we think about everything, how we think about success, how we think about a family, how we think about money and sex and power and conflict and all of it. And as a church, we are not here just learning an idea, but we are learning a new way of life together. We're committed to becoming learners as we are taught the teachings of Jesus and we learn what it means to follow him and to become more like him. The second thing today and the last thing I'll say is that a living church is a participating church. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. I often speak of the issue of loneliness. Even before those years of the pandemic, loneliness was called an epidemic, and it has been on the rise for many, many years in a row. Now, by loneliness, I don't just mean being alone, okay? Being alone and being lonely are not the same thing. If you're anything like me, you love to be alone. Anybody? You love to be alone? Where are my introverts at? Yeah, I know. I understand. Whenever I say that to a room of introverts, nobody even wants to raise a hand, right? It's like, don't even look at me. Uh, I get it. Me, put me in the corner with a good book and leave me there for three weeks, okay? Like, awesome. That sounds amazing to me. I'm, I'm all about that, okay? It's great. I, I like to be alone. It doesn't mean 
I'm lonely. Sometimes I can remember, like, when I was younger, like, you know, in Bible college and stuff, people would come over and be like, oh, you looked lonely over there. I'm like, I guarantee you, I'm not lonely, okay? <laughs> I'm being alone, and there's a big difference. So I like to be alone. It's not the same thing. If you're anything like my mother, you hate to be alone. Uh, where are you people at? You know, the extroverts in the room. Where are you people at? Okay, yeah. Settle down, okay. You need to be with people. Um, we're all different. Amazing. I'm thankful that we're all different. Um, but loneliness, according to mental health professionals, is the gap between the level of connectedness that you need and the level of connectedness that you have. And this is different for everybody. And in small doses, loneliness is not such a bad thing. It's like a hunger or a thirst. It's a healthy signal that you're missing something that you need. But if you deprive yourself of connectedness for too long, that hunger turns into starvation. The problem of loneliness has been enhanced by individualism in the Western world that values me, myself, and I as most important. According to um, a man named Dr. Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General for the United States, loneliness increases depression and anxiety, substance abuse, heart disease, cancer, strokes, and can lead to premature death. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. And this is why church is important, not as an institution but as a people. The church is an alternative society where loneliness is not a threat because it has been replaced by fellowship. I'm well aware that the word fellowship falls into a category of language that makes no sense to 99% of the population, okay? I get that. It's a Christian buzzword, Christianese. It's something, let's be real, we don't even really say this word in church, do we? It's like fellowship. What's fellowship in Swedish? There's not even a word for it. Yemenskop? Did you see that? I just would like to brag for a moment on myself that in a room full of Swedes, I just pulled the word out of my head Nobody else did. Please do not clap for that. Um, fellowship, we don't say it that much. For many of us, we hear the word fellowship, yemenskop, and we just think about like hanging out with people. We think it means just like grabbing a fika and coffee with somebody, something like that, just chatting, you know. I'm just having, I'm just having fellowship, you know, and we're just chatting or something like that. And, uh, you know, we don't really use it. But I've talked about this word and this concept quite a lot because I think it's so important for us as a church and, and it, with regard to what we are about as a church. This word is an important word. The Greek word is koinonia, and it's broader, deeper, more meaningful than just hanging out or spending time together or grabbing coffee. But it refers to intimate spiritual participation. It involves active participation in life together. It's an intentional and sacrificial sharing of life as a church community with God and with one another. This means that as a church, we share life in a deep way with others. We're committed to other people. We share our time with others. We share our stuff with others. It's a hard one. It's like, my time, no problem. My stuff, no way. Um, and this is what the church in the book of Acts was devoted to. And that essential element of koinonia, fellowship, is participation. A living church is a participating church. These early Christians were not just consumers of church as if it's a show to be consumed. They were the church. 
They participated through the sharing of their time and their resources and their energy in themselves. And this needs to be our approach to church today. Church is not just something that we attend. It's something that we are. As we read through the book of Acts, there are all these places in Acts where the, the writer of Acts, Luke, he presses pause to give a quick description, a little peek into the life of these early church communities. And he does this in Acts 4, verse 32 to 35. I want to read it to you. Um, follow along on the screen behind me. You can go ahead and, and throw that up quickly on the screen. Um, and I'm going to read to you from the screen because there's a good chance I have the different translation here. But it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Um, now, this is profound. But if you're like me, you might step back and think, that's a little much. <laughs> that's a little strange. Luke goes on to describe how this all worked, and it wasn't just a free-for-all, okay? It wasn't like somebody would just walk into someone else's house and be like, yo, I need your TV. Uh, you know, Eurovision's on tonight. You got a bigger one, so thanks a lot. Uh, you know, I'll bring it back later, maybe. Thanks very much. You're a Christian. Awesome. Love you. You know, uh, fellowship. Koinonia, bro. Peace out. You know, it's like, don't come and do that at my house, okay? Uh, that's not what Luke is talking about here. But there was a deep awareness in people that out of the blessing that I have, I want to sacrifice so that others are taken care of and not in need. The principle here is that there's an awareness that I am connected to the well-being of the people in my church community. And in light of the good news of Jesus, I view my resources and who I am, my time, energy, money, and things, I view it differently. I recognize that if somebody is hurting in the church, I'm hurting because we are connected. And this is a counter-cultural way of living. When we are committed, when we actively participate in life together, it shows people the reality of Jesus. I'm so thankful that in our church we see this happening all the time. I can't even tell you the amount of people that actively participate in life together here. We see it a lot. You wouldn't know it, but as a pastor, I know it behind the scenes of people that help take care of the bills of other people. You might think that's radical. It is radical. That help pay for people's apartments. That help get people set up. I mean, that's radical. And do they come up and tell everybody about it? No, you wouldn't even know. I've had people come up to me in our church and say, just so you know, like sometimes, you know, we'll do like an after church or a hang or something. We've had people come up and say, if there's somebody that doesn't feel that they can go because they don't have money to buy lunch, you let me know and I'll cover it. No questions asked. That's powerful. How amazing is that? We've got people in our church that commit their time week in and week out to making church happen. This doesn't just pop up, but we have people that are devoted to this. I love it. It's incredible to see. This past week, for, for instance, um, many of you will have seen Stefan playing bass here. You know, he just asked for me and, and Johanna, who leads our worship team, he's like, hey, I just want to gather the musicians and, or I'm going to organize worship rehearsals. And so last Monday night, just gathered people together and just working through stuff. How awesome is that? He doesn't have to do that. He's busy. He has a job, a family, he's a father. What would compel somebody to do that? What compels people to wake up and be in church early this morning to turn all of this on? 
It's active, it's koinonia, it's active participation. It's who we are as a church, it's what we're about. I love it. There's big things that take place and there's small things that take place. Uh, Many of you know Robin. One thing I love about Robin, just observing him over the last little while, is he'll never let somebody walk home uh, when he's around. I see it all the time. It's like, you need a ride? You need a ride? Let me take you home. You need a ride? I'll take you home. Sometimes I've seen people walking on the road and he drives his car up to them and says, get in, I'm driving you home. (laughs) It's awesome. Life together, active participation. This is not what the world looks like. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And we as a church are an outpost of heaven inland shipping. And we get to show this. We're committed to this as followers of Jesus. We are a living church and a living church is a participating church. It's because of koinonia that Paul could write in Philippians 1, 7, you share in God's grace with me. That John could write in 1 John 1, 3, you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Paul would add to that in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, also the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We see this language permeate the New Testament, koinonia, fellowship, active participation, that as we actively participate in life with God, we do it with one another as well. And this is what makes us one. I mean, look around. We come from so many different places, different cultures, We've all got different attitudes, temperaments, gifts, interests, personalities, and yet we've got one thing in common here today. And that is that God is our heavenly father and the same Jesus Christ is our Lord and savior and the same Holy Spirit is our helper. And it is our active participation through the father, the son, and the spirit that unites us as a family. It's why we do connect groups, by the way, and why this is important. It's a place where we actively participate in life together. We grow in Christian maturity through this. We spur, in the words of Hebrews, we spur one another on to good deeds as we don't give up meeting together. I love that about our connect groups. If you don't know our connect groups, there are small groups that meet throughout the week, which I love because as a church, we don't stop being the church when we leave this building. And I love that every week there are little groups of people meeting represented across all neighborhoods in our city. And we're talking about the Bible. We're praying for one another. It's amazing. I love my connect group. It's awesome. We met this past Wednesday. We sat outside in the sunroom. We chatted about the Bible and what church means. We got to pray for one another. We got to stand up and lay hands on one of the guys. And I was just like, I hope my neighbors are looking right now. I want them to see this. Everybody take notice because God's doing something in my little pocket of the city. We actively participate in life with one another. I love that we get to do this. As the worship team comes, just to close off this morning. Life Center Church, this church is a church. We are committed to being a living church because we serve a living God. We're a church that is marked by and committed to learning. We're a church that is marked by and is committed to participating. In the coming weeks, we're going to explore the rest of the passage I read at the beginning of this sermon in Acts 2. And so if you want something to read in the Bible this week, you don't know what to read, I just want to encourage you, read Acts 2. Read Acts 1 and read Acts 2 and then read all the rest of it. Um, But read Acts 2. That's what we're going to be really based in for the next couple of weeks. And um, I do just want to, spoiler alert, skip ahead to the end of this paragraph that I read this morning, where it says that, As the church was doing these things and going about these things, 
that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They were not just doing this to serve themselves. They were not just doing this because it was their nice little Christian club gathering together. Like, oh, we're just going to gather and learn together and participate and blah, blah. They were actually doing this. And as they were, it served as such a powerful witness to the world around them that people were daily being saved. And they weren't just being saved, but they were added to the number of the church as well. People were making a decision to make Jesus their Lord and Savior. And then they were getting plugged into a church community where they could experience discipleship and learn, experience koinonia, life together, and they could grow in their faith. I really believe that as we rediscover church in this series and what this means for us, I truly believe, it's my desire, that the Lord would continue to add people to our number daily. That it wouldn't just be what is, but we would continue to grow. We want to grow as a church, not for the sake of our name, but because we know that every person who comes here and puts themselves in a chair is made in the image of God, is loved by God, is purposed by God. There are no accidental people. And that we are in a city that needs to know the love of Jesus. How do we witness to that love? I think one of the ways is we do it by committing to these things, learning, participating, as we'll see next week, worshiping, and the week after that, reaching. We need you to be a part of it. We want you to be a part of it. There's a purpose in this, and there's a reason for this. I'm thankful for what God's doing, and I think it's exciting. I hope you do too.